we know how to make people feel like they don't belong. We know how to exclude people and, and, and we know what consequences that can have. And so we can, you know, on the other side, we know how to make people feel like they belong and we know how powerful that can be. So we can really use that in college settings to create a lots of positive change and, and really support positive life outcomes. So, so I'm excited about it. I think we have you know, there's just so many ways to like us as a belonging. I probably have a job for a very long time. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Tiffany, I hate to say this, but after all these years, you've mispronounced my name. What? <laughs> B-Rad? Okay. Sometimes in emails, I go with it. <laughs> Last week, we were joined on the podcast by Dr. Nidia Redas Gracia. And Nidia has joined us again this week. It's great to have you back, Nidia. Hello, hello. Thank you. So we were talking about the sense of belonging. And if you didn't get a chance to catch last week's episode, please go back and tune in. Otherwise, we're going to continue that conversation. Formerly, I worked in student development and heard about belonging a lot among student affairs professionals, like you said, and the research and strategies and the fight for funding and support. In your research, have you seen anything specific to graduate programs or online programs and learners that, you know, don't have residence life or don't have that traditional classroom to walk into and approach their peers and at their desks and approach their instructor at their desk. And what's that look like for belonging? Yeah, there's much less research on that. It's coming. So I'm, I'm not saying there's zero on it. And <laughs> I really appreciate the, the work that is being done. Some of my students, actually, some of my graduate students are also kind of working on publishing some research on what, what does this even mean? For example, like you mentioned, graduate students, you know, as an undergrad, I knew a lot about I went to undergrad at UCLA. I knew a lot about UCLA, where the libraries were and where the food was very important. But I got my PhD at Stanford and I know about two buildings <laughs> and, you know, definitely was a different conceptualization of belonging. And then you bring up such a great point. Again, you know, we typically think of the traditional college student as one that lives on campus or close mm -hmm. to campus or that is taking classes in person. But there's another way of being a college student, and that is of a commuter college student or a student who's taking online courses. And so I think that we still have a ways to go in truly understanding what sense of belonging means. And I think that that's important. So not just how it looks, but I think like, how do we define it? Do we still define it in the same way? And we might, you know, so part of the components that I mentioned of student belonging in college, one of them is a sense of connectedness, right? Do you feel connected to students or to the university? I think you can make that happen via online programs. And I think you can make that happen in terms of commuter students. I know some universities that have like a, a whole center for commuter students. 
that really is tailored to the commuter experience. Um, and so that is the university signaling to commuter students, we see you, we not only see you, we understand your needs, and we not only see you and understand your needs, but we provided some funding here, wink, wink, we <laughs> provided some funding here for us to support you. We're putting our money behind it and are providing these resources. So, you know, those are some signals to students. And I think that we can work on as well, building that sense of connectedness via online programming as well, you know, further understanding like what kind of students are the ones who are taking the online classes? What are they doing outside of class hours? And how can we support them so that when they log on, they're not just logging on and feel like they're just kind of on the screen, but they're logging on and saying, this campus really understands why I'm taking online classes and how I can be best supported. Mm -hmm. You don't have to agree with what I'm going to say next, <laughs> but my assumption would be that as a group, student affairs personnel are more interested in belonging than our faculty. Ooh, we're going to start start some fights. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he loves to well, do that. <laughs> let's get this going. Yeah, I'm up for the challenge. I think that part of it might be the tasks and responsibilities that are put on student affairs and faculty. So they're a bit different. So for example, if you are at a quote unquote R1 institution where a majority of faculties pay raises and tenure process is focused on how much they can publish, right? They might feel, even if they really wanted to build a space where students felt like they belonged, they might feel a little tugged and have to make some compromises. Whereas student affairs, it might be probably maybe a part of their job description to retain students, to mm -hmm. make them, to provide the resources and support so it's more at the forefront of what they're doing. But I don't want to have that be an excuse either, because I know of a lot of fabulous faculty who have really woven mm -hmm. in sense of belonging into the way that they do things. So mm -hmm. they have amazing labs where they are very mindful of recruiting and hiring research assistants from various different backgrounds so that they get that experience with research they feel a sense of belonging to the campus and the lab. I know a lot of faculty that also will invite students to be on their publications, to go collect data with them. There's just like so many ways, I think, of fostering in and outside of the classroom, fostering belonging. And I really, really admire the faculty and I try to be like them. I really admire the faculty that are able to weave it in where they're getting their publications out and they're doing everything in the job description, and at the same time, ensuring that they are building a sense of belonging to their students, but also to other faculty and, and building that sense of belonging just all around them. So yeah. I think that it can definitely be done. That was an incredibly diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs> I know. One of the things we've been looking at is, I think that runs alongside this whole sense of belonging, is the idea of hospitality. 
-hmm. So you think of faculty teaching, and one of the things they talk about in hospitality literature is the stranger. So students enter a classroom as strangers and don't know one another or the faculty. So how can they build a place where everybody's a member, where everybody's name is known, where you, it's safe, you can make mistakes, all those kinds of things? Ooh, let's see. Well, I mean, my mind is buzzing now with all kinds of ways <laughs> that we can do that. And one thing that's popping up in my mind is this idea, also fabulous scholars that have talked about this, of mere belonging. It's not a holistic solution anyway, but when you're on a time crunch and you have a large class and there's mm. just a lot of things going on, the idea of mere belonging is that you can kind of signal a sense of belonging via different things. For example, my first lecture, I have the About Me page where I introduce myself and who I am. And I kind of purposely uh, include some signals of belonging for various populations. So for example, I'll talk about how I identify as Mexican-American and that signals to students of color or students who are also Latinx or Mexican-American, oh, this is something we have in common. And that might signal that idea of mere belonging where it's like something simple and you know shouldn't be the solution, but it can kind of get us going. Um, or I will mention that, you know, I am from Los Angeles, a big, you know, city person was raised in big cities. And so people who were born in big cities, or I'll say that I'm first generation. And so first gen students, mm -hmm. you know, ears will perk up and say like, oh, wow, my professor is also a first generation college student. So I think that those are some things that can be done in the classroom. We also give a shout out to Purple Airheads. Purple airheads, I do. I tell them that if they want A's, then <laughs> they can get their hands on some purple airheads <laughs> that that they, you know, they might consider it. And you know, all all, all jokes, but it just makes you feel a little more relatable. Um, and I definitely think you you mentioned names. It's very difficult when you have a large class, yeah. um, but even you trying signals belonging because there's a bunch of really cool videos that I show in my classes about how there are people in the United States and there are people on college camp campuses whose name never gets mispronounced. True. So they don't have to think about whether they belong or not. Their names always get pronounced well. They don't have to worry about it. But then there are students in college campuses whose name is so often mispronounced that they even give themselves a new easier name. That's, you know, not the real name, but they'll come up with a different name just so mm -hmm. that they, you know, don't have to always correct or, or feel that sense of not belonging. So even faculty just trying and telling students, there's a lot of you, but we're going to try this. We're going to make an attempt to can be helpful. Well, I used to repeatedly make the same mistake over and over again when I taught on the residential campus. I taught a course that had 150 students in every section. And so I'd see somebody who graduated from the university. This was a course that all freshmen took. And I'd say, well, did you take the course? It's called World Changers. Did you take World Changers? And they would say, well, yes, I did. And then I would make the mistake of asking, who did you have for that class? And they would say, well, I had you. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. And you think I'd learned the first time, but I've done it a hundred times. <laughs> I think they'll understand.
Well, as Brad mentioned at the beginning, you have just an impressive CV and so much research that we could dive into. But we're curious, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the key findings of late that excite you or surprise Mm -hmm. you and propel you towards new directions? Yeah, well, I feel like I'm you know, compelled to talk about the one that that B read that, that Brad was was already <laughs> you were hinting at it, so we we yeah, picked it up. So now it. we got now we got to give the people what they want. So I'm really excited about this. One of my latest articles is in Emerging Adulthood, and I'm just I'm excited about it and happy about it and proud of it for many reasons. One is that we were actually able to measure sense of belonging for college students from their first year in college Mm. until at least their fourth year in college. And we measured it once per year. And so we were able to really see what I think of as like the belonging roller coaster. Mm. Because if you look at it just at time one and time, like first time point and the end time point, what we saw is there wasn't really a change. So it seemed to be that belonging was stable over time. But then when you looked at the in-between years, that's the beauty of our, I think, where the beauty of the paper is because the in-between years show you that for some students, it was a big belonging roller coaster. Mm -hmm. It was dipping down, dipping up. And for some, it was a little bit more stable on top. For some of them, it was a little bit more stable on the bottom. And so it was really cool to see this graph, this roller coaster. And the extra exciting thing about it, um, it's a it's a pretty long article, um, but I promise it's filled with fun information. And part of it is <laughs> what we did too is that we didn't just look at different social identities like gender identity, socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity separately. We also looked at it through an intersectional lens. So what we were able to do with that is we were able to show For example, if you identify as female, black, and first gen, what did your roller coaster look like? Uh, Because, you know, oftentimes we kind of look at, if we want to focus on race and ethnicity, we look at whether you identify as black or whether you identify as indigenous or whether you identify as Latinx, and we kind of compare that. But within that, there's so much heterogeneity. You could be first gen or not first gen. You could be female identifying or male identifying or non-binary. And so we looked at those three social identities, uh, race and ethnicity, social class, and gender identity. And we looked each of them from an intersectional lens and we're able to show you what that roller coaster looked like. And we were able to compare, for example, for students who identified as black, we were able to show you female versus male differences, and then also first gen versus non-first gen differences. So we cut it up in a lot of different pieces, which took us a very long time. Thank you to my co-authors. <laughs> Thank you very much for, you know, hanging in there with me. But if things kind of keep progressing and I'm able to get the data that I can get, I'd love to continue that trend to be able to cut it up into all kinds of different pieces because that's when you really understand because the student that you're going to try to help will have different social identities. They won't just be Latinx. They won't just be female. They won't just be a commuter there'll be a lot of different things. And the more you can understand about their mix and how that experience plays out, the better you are able to 
figure out what kind of intervention to place if need be, or just kind of, you know, how to better understand them and how to help them feel connected. Would it be safe to say, if I'm a faculty member or an institution thinking about how to help students belong, that belonging is not a one and done event. It's, it's something that has to be spread across the entire time the person is with us. And also an element of individualizing that. Not just looking at the crowd and say, hey, I'm glad you're all here, but really individual interactions with people to help them sense that belonging. Yeah, yeah. And and also, you know, when, when you were mentioning, it's not like a one and done type of thing that might sound overwhelming, like, oh, my gosh, I've got to maintain this thing over time. <laughs> but it also I would posit it as, you know, a lot of moments of opportunity, you know, so if you didn't get it right the first time, you know, if you didn't get it right for the first year freshman commuter, female student parents, then you have more opportunities to do mm -hmm. so because this is something that is maintained over time, but also it can change over time. So you have opportunities to do so. And in terms of individualizing programs and policies, it also can help us think about even like, for example, some universities will have like cultural centers, but they're oftentimes, not always, but they're oftentimes specific to races and ethnicities. There's so much opportunity there within those cultural centers to then think about this intersectional identity piece. And uh, within that, right, are we supporting, let's say we're looking at cultural center for Asian American students or just Asian students writ large, are we supporting Asian international students? Are we supporting community mm -hmm. students who identify as Asian, Asian first gen. There's also all kinds of different ways of being Asian. Uh, it's not just like one big umbrella. And so I see it, maybe I'm, you know, just a really positive person, but I see these as just like really big opportunities. So big ways to support. So it can sound overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, there's just so many ways of being a college student. And then you have to maintain this thing over time. Well, that just means there's a lot of opportunities here mm -hmm. to support students. And, you know, if you don't get it right the first time, there are still lots of opportunities to get it right. Thank you. Well, I'm encouraged that Nydia is researching this topic. I think <laughs> it's so important. And we all have so much to learn about it. So mm -hmm. thank you for your efforts and your singular focus on this area of student success. Thank you so much. I, I really do think, one, it's a fascinating topic to talk about with anybody and everybody. So I picked something that, that I can really talk about to so many groups and people. But I just think it's just so important. And and we I think we know this, right? And not just in school settings, but outside of, of education, we know how to make people feel like they don't belong. We know how to exclude people and and, and we know what consequences that can have. Absolutely. And so we can, you know, on the other side, we know how to make people feel like they belong and we know how powerful that can be. So we can really use that in college settings to create a lots of positive change and and really support positive life outcomes so so i'm excited about it i think we have you know there's just so many ways to like that sense of belonging i probably have a job for a very long time right? <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm happy to do it yeah yeah i'll i'll do it happily <laughs>
Well, it's, it's fun. Our viewers can't see your face, but you can see it on your face. And as you describe <laughs> it, how much you enjoy this topic. That is mm -hmm. a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, it does excite me very much. And it just feels like the ultimate blessing when you do provide yeah. that space for someone to feel a sense of belonging. I love the student emails I get. I love, you know, the faculty and people that are not in education that, you know, send me an email or a text and say like, thank you so much. You know, I just felt out of place, but you really helped me. Nice. You feel that's a little wonderful. bit better. So that's wonderful. That's, yeah. Thank you. Well, Nadia, thank you for being with us today. Thank you again for inviting me to the party, making me feel like I belong. <laughs> you do belong to Digital Learn. That was our goal. Thank you. <laughs> and to our listeners, we'll be back next week with a new guest and new topic on the Digital to Learn podcast. In the meantime, please like and share this episode and last week's episode with Dr. Nidia, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.